you. Good morning. I have news. Good news. Good news. Incredible news. Tomorrow, the city of Visalia is going to sign off and give us occupancy of the building. So that's a big praise of Lord. We're very thankful for that. <clears throat> they gave us verbal approval, but tomorrow they will have a chance to actually sign it. And so that is, uh, that's news. That's good news. That's incredible news. So, hey, we're going to have a celebration and dedication on October 4th. And I know that you thought, whoa, that's a couple of months away. Yeah, it is, but we got stuff to do, you know. <laughs> we're eager. We wish we could just drop everything and move straight over. Uh, but we have camps coming up the next, I'll be gone all this next week with the satellite people. They're a strange breed. And uh, I love them, I love them, I love them. They're my people. They're the future. I really believe that. You are the future. Did you hear me? Did you hear me over there? You are the future. So shape up. But... <laughs> We're going to have a bash, and we've got to get prepared for that as well. And then we have to synchronize the whole phone thing. You know, we can't set it up over there and still be stuck here. So there's some logistical things, but we're going to be ready. And we'll be, probably be over there, but then October 4th, we're going to have a big celebration and dedication. So, of course, we'll let you know more about that. Okay, 1 Corinthians We've been in chapters 8, 9, and 10. It's all about meat. No, it's really not about meat. It's about things deeper than that. But meat is the issue. Meat offered to idols. We've looked at chapter 8, chapter 9, and we are in the second half of chapter 10, verses 14 through 33. I'd like to read that to you now. So if you have your Bible open, follow as I read. Therefore, my beloved... Flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of the blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat 
whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I don't mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews, or to Greeks, or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Because of Jesus, we are caught up in the glory of God. We are bearers, bearers, you know, like standard bearers. We are bearers of God's glory. And this, especially because Jesus is the glory of God, and we belong to him. We even are called the body of Christ. Nothing we do Nothing you do, nothing I do can actually diminish God's glory because God's glory is who he really is. Call it his character, his attributes. But in bearing his name, being a bearer of his glory, we are in positions of helping or harming others in their ability to see who God really is, to see his glory. And it depends on whether we are glory givers or glory getters. Glory getting gets in the way of giving God glory. Glory getting gets in the way of giving God glory. And that's just another way of talking about the issue in 1 Corinthians chapters 8, 9, and 10. The issue of eating meat offered to idols ultimately gets back to whose glory are you seeking? Some Corinthians, as you know, but I want to remind us, have become so caught up in their own glory getting that is, enhancing their own social status in Corinthian society, they insist on their rights, even though insisting on their rights is sabotaging the true image and work of God. It's not ultimately a rights issue. It's an attitude issue. As Paul said at the very start, knowledge puffs up. Love builds up. Chapter 8, verse 1. Maybe to give this a little perspective, I read this week the story of a church, and this, uh, this, these events were some time back, but I read this week the story of a church that divided, that split over some boys wearing baseball caps into the worship service and to, to church in the worship service. Fifteen percent of the members of the church left because of a few boys wearing baseball caps. Let me... Um, Look, I I realize uh, those who left didn't see baseball caps uh, as a trivial thing, uh, like I do. 
I think that's because they felt that the real issue was not baseball caps. The real issue were principles, principles of what's right. So let me try to summarize what happened. A few high school students were late getting home on a Saturday night because uh, their team had played in a tournament miles away. So they got up in the morning for church. They didn't have time to shower. You see, you know this is a true story because teenagers cannot get up in time to shower when they go to bed late. And, uh, and so they just put on their nice clothes, but they still had bad hair. And I know some of you know what I'm talking about. In fact, if you come down to the office on a Friday or Saturday when I'm here, um, I will be wearing, in most cases, a baseball hat because uh, it's, those are my days off and so I don't have to shower and shave and I just put a baseball cap on and come down to do some of this stuff, what I'm talking about, you know? So anyway, <laughs> So they got dressed up, even though they hadn't had really a chance to shower, and they put on their baseball caps. They came to church, and the mother of one of the boys told one of the pastors what was going on, why they were explaining why they were wearing their baseball. And the pastor, he just shrugged, he says, no problem. And there was no problem. The boys worshiped right along with everybody with their baseball caps on. Nobody said a word. But then the next Sunday... Even though they showered and put on their nice clothes, they also wore their baseball caps. And then the next Sunday, they did the same thing. And then on the fourth Sunday, they wore their baseball caps again. But this time, by now, people are starting to chatter and take sides on the issue. So the elders go to the pastor and say, hey, we're hearing this, uh, you know, this is becoming a thing the boys wearing their baseball caps, you got to do something about this. And the pastor, he goes to the Word, and he's looking for a verse, you know, maybe like in the back or something, uh, uh, baseball caps, baseball caps, trying to find out, you know, what does God have to say about wearing baseball caps to church? He doesn't find anything in Scripture about baseball caps, but this is becoming a divisive issue. So he says, I'm going to go talk to the boys. And he goes and he talks to the boys and explains the situation and says, you know, would you mind not wearing your baseball caps in the worship service? And they said, no problem. Solved. Solved. But when the parents of the boys heard about it, it snowballed back into a bigger thing. And just like that, the family of God was divided, and not only divided, divorced. And people went their separate ways over whether or not we should wear baseball caps. And that's the same, in principle, issue here in 1 Corinthians 8 through 10. Paul has been asked to kind of umpire this, and he is trying to get not at just new rules. He is trying to say there are no rules. We have to use good judgment. And in the end, he says, we have to use this big principle. We need to glorify God. What's going to honor the glory of God, who he really is? And as I will explain in a few minutes, who he really is, is expressed in his love and in his mercy and in his generosity and his kindness. And so Paul appeals to such things as that. Not rights, not rights, not cherished privileges, but people. And the right thing being matters of unity in Jesus Christ for which he laid down his life to establish in our hearts that we might know that love, not only of God for us, but that love for others and find ways to operate together. 
whether it's coming to the middle or somebody just saying, you know what, I mean, I, I don't want to talk too much more about this church and baseball caps, but why didn't the parents say, that's great, boys, we're proud of you? I don't know. Maybe I don't know all the facts. Often that's part of the problem. And we have to expect the best of each other and seek the best of God for each other. And if we have any question of what that looks like, then look into the heart of Jesus Christ, who represents the redemptive work of God for the whole human race since the beginning of creation. And it will be the consummation of his greatest creative act and his glory. Sorry, I just got to preach in there a little bit. Just one more thing on this. In the end, in the end, on this baseball cap thing. Now, if they had been Giants caps, it would have been probably a different, if it had been LA caps, I gotta tell you, I, I would have really had an issue there. You know that's not true. I admire the Dodgers, especially when they're behind us, but, okay, I'm sorry. There are more important things to talk about. You know, outsiders, seriously, just you and me, people who don't know what this Christian thing is all about, they have a real problem. I would have a real problem if people who are supposedly redeemed and reconciled by the person of Jesus Christ cannot be reconciled with one another. That tells me that the person you call Lord and Savior isn't strong enough in your own life to redeem you in your relationship with Billy or Mary over there. That is a horrible message to be sending to the world. And that's the message that the church is sending, that we divide, we can't tolerate, we can't get along, we can't overlook issues of baseball caps. Oh, but we worship the Redeemer of the world. He who is the reconciler, he's the Lord. I think you get my point. Giving God his glory can settle questions of doubtful behavior. And Paul settles some questions. What he says here in verses 14 through 30, it's divided into three sections. But what he's saying is we have to be sensible, verse 15. He says we have to use good judgment. Life isn't black and white. But he says, we can give God glory for whatever is on the menu. It's not the menu, it's the venue. That's what he's saying. And he gives us three venues. The first venue is the temple. The second venue is the market. And the third venue is the dinner party. He says the issue of meat is different in the temple than it is in the market than it is at the dinner party. It's the same meat, but the venue makes a difference because it's the venue that is invested with meaning. So you have to use good judgment. And that's what he's sorting out here. Let's look at meat at the temple. And that's in verses 16 through 22. In the opening verses, he talks about the Lord's table, verses 16 and 17. Israel's sacrifice, verse 18 and pagan sacrifice, verse 20. Basically, this is what he's saying. 
How many of you have heard of the word koinonia? That's a, that's a pretty important word, isn't it? It means fellowship, but deeper than just some of our contemporary or modern notions of fellowship. This word koinonia means, speaks of a bond of mutual participation, a bond of mutual participation. And that's why it's a good word to talk about the fellowship that we have in Jesus Christ, this bond of mutual participation in Christ through his Spirit. Paul uses that word, that very word, to talk about what happens when we become one in the taking of the bread and the cup. There is a bond when we observe the Lord's Supper together. There is a bond rooted in the very person of Jesus Christ and what he did for you and what he did for me. What he did for you means as much as what he did for me. And it, it, it just brings us together with one heart. In the very fiber of our being, we are united in Jesus Christ. Then Paul talks about Israel being united at the altar, the sacrifices, in bringing their sacrifices. They're one in the altar in their worship of God. Uses the same word, koinonia. And then he talks about pagans. He says when those pagans bring their sacrifices, it's not the, the sacrifice. Does it mean anything? Because, oh, let me back up, just bring something, where Paul says, what do I mean? You know, what do I imply? After he's talked about the Lord's Supper, and then he talks about Israel's sacrifice, and then he says, what am I implying? Well, just as we have true fellowship, and just as Israel ha have true fellowship, the implication is, is that those pagans in their in their worship, they have a true fellowship, a bond of mutual participation in what they're doing. But Paul says, I don't want you to misunderstand. I'm not implying that the meat means anything. And I'm not implying that the idol means anything. Although, he says, when they are worshiping, he says, there are demonic forces at work behind all of that worship because they are not worshiping the one true God. And by the way, you might want to refer to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, and Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, where, where, where Paul talks about principalities and powers, and then when you get to chapter 6, verse 12, he says, we do not, we don't wrestle with flesh and blood. If you think you're wrestling with flesh and blood, you're going to get caught up in silly issues of privilege and rights. But if you realize that we're wrestling with powers, the forces that contest the glory of God, then you'll have the proper perspective that you need. But Paul wants us to understand those demons, he says, they're nothing. This is not a rivalry. You know, they are, they are not God's rivals. They're fallen angels. God is not going to have any trouble putting them down when the time comes. They're like a dachshund that I'm taking care of that nips at my ankles. I tolerate it. But he still says, I want you to understand this bond of mutual participation that we have with Jesus Christ that makes us one body, that unites them too. And when you are worshiping with them, even though you're there just because it's a social event, you can't miss on your way to, to gaining a position in commerce or business or in politics within the city. I know that's your goal. You want to be seen. You want to be there. So you put up with this. You, you, you tell me, I know they're not gods. I know that the meat means nothing. 
But Paul's saying, when you are bonded in mutual participation with the Lord, and then you are there where they are bonding in mutual participation with demonic forces in the worship of practices, whether it be Apollo or Athena, you may not think it's anything, but they think it's something that you're involved in, and it diminishes the glory and uniqueness of the lordship of Jesus Christ because they invest what you're doing with meaning, the same meaning they invest in those worship practices. He says, you just can't hold the Lord in one hand and these practices in the other. So he says, don't stand on your rights, verses 23 and 4. You can't glorify the Lord and show allegiance to other so-called lords and gods. Then he turns to meet at the market. And basically he says, if it's on sale, you can eat it. No problem. Don't sweat it. Don't question it. Enjoy. Just when you enjoy, express your enjoyment to the Lord. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. That's why we pray before our meals. That's why we ought to be, so to speak, whispering and our hearts expressive of thanksgiving and gratitude all the time because everything is of the Lord. And we ought to know that better than anyone is what Paul's saying. So you give thanks for it. You acknowledge his glory. This is a fraction of his greatness that we enjoy. No problemo. And by the way, look at verse 30 because that's the mindset. That's the heart behind it. Paul says, if I partake with thankfulness, well, who's he thanking? This isn't just some kind of a mystical, oh, I'm thankful. This is an acknowledgement recognition of the Lord. And he says, if I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that at least that's the way my e, the ESV reads, because of that. What is that? Well, that's whatever is being eaten, the meat. Why should I be, now, be denounced if I eat with thankfulness that for which I give thanks? So in the contest of giving glory, everything belongs to the Lord, and we acknowledge that with our thankfulness. No problem. So I, I, I just don't want to hear from any more of you vegans. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> I admire your veganism. I do. <clears throat> but what about meat at the dinner party? And this we see in verses 27 through 30. So here we are, we're at a dinner party. That's why it should be translated someone. It's not the people who are throwing the party. They're serving the meat. They got it at the marketplace. Maybe they got a deal on some straight from the temple. He doesn't care. He says, eat whatever's set before you. You're their guest. They're pagans. You, if you feel disposed to go, you want to go, go, have fun, eat your meat. But if somebody at the table says, uh, isn't this meat that was offered to idols? In other words, if it becomes an issue of conscience for somebody in the room, Paul says, then don't eat it. He says, not that you should make it an issue of your conscience. You don't have to, you know, kind of skulk away and saying, bad Christian, bad Christian. No, he's saying, it's the other person's conscience which you are respecting. They are troubled because they regard it as an issue of worship of foreign deities. And so he says, you can, you see, not menu, venue. Not menu, venue. In other words, what's the setting? Who's involved? What are some of the expectations and beliefs surrounding what's going on? All three of these occasions uh, really give a tailored answer to the venue and situation. Let me just read to you 
from Romans chapter 14. Turn in your Bible for a moment. Just turn back to your left to Romans chapter 14. And what's interesting is because this is maybe a, a year and a half later when Paul writes his letter to the Romans. And what we have in, in Romans 14 is the same issue, but the, it's digested in a way that instead of three chapters, he gives it in a more condensed, and, and obviously it's more concise. And I, I want you to just hear what he says in verses 14 through 20. You can read the whole chapter sometime. Therefore, excuse me, verse 14, I know, Paul says, and I'm persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing, and in the Greek, that means nothing. Nothing is unclean in itself but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. Isn't that interesting? By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good to be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual, mutual upbuilding. Do not for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. So, don't let your glory get in the way of the Lord's glory. And we see this in verses 31 through 33. Whatever you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Now, it's interesting. When you read the New Testament, you see this word glory. But in, in, in the general Roman Corinthian culture, that word means like fame, reputation, status. And of course, uh, in that context, uh, to glorify somebody would be to elevate their reputation, right? Uh, to make it better or to at least maintain it, to augment it, to enhance it. And that's exactly what people did. But in Israel, in the scriptures of the Old Testament, the word glory, it's, it's not like they're not related or there isn't any overlap, but the word glory, kavod, names that characteristic which makes something impressive, weighty, radiant with splendor. So ascribe, says the psalmist, in Psalm 92, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength, ascribe to the Lord the glory due to his name. Look and see his glory in the creation. And if you haven't gotten out of the house lately, or you're kind of a city bug and, and you haven't been up into the mountains, or you're not a trekker or backpacker or something, you really should expose yourself to kind of the uh, untamed, untouched majesty of God's creation. Maybe spend a little time meditating on these storms that blow through, or thunder, or lightning, 
or expose yourself to some of the power of God's creation because it is a parable of his power. It is a constituent of his glory, who he really is, that he could create such majesty, such vastness. But there's more. Because when you just, we look at it through the lens of the Bible. But what if we, what if we just looked at it without the Bible? Because you see, the Bible is the reveal, the revealed Word of God. It is God exposing us to truth about who He really is. And so in Exodus 33, Moses, when he was on Sinai with with God, and the people were waiting. God, Moses asked God, show me your glory. Show me your glory. And God said, I will. And then in 34.6, he puts him in the cleft of the rock and he passes by. And just as the psalmist said, ascribe to the Lord glory, do his name, do to his or warranted by his name. And so the Lord passes by and we hear his name, the Lord, the Lord, or Yahweh, Yahweh, the God who is merciful gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Now, you, you, you think, yeah, oh, I've heard that before. That's, but think about it. How would you know just from God's creation, the majesty, the glory of it, the intentions of God's heart, his purposes, his plans, the reason he created all this. How would you know? He revealed it. And he didn't say, hey, Moses, I'm going to show you. you." You know, he didn't take him on some astral ride to, to see the majesty of his creation. He wanted him to survey the majesty of his heart. And here, there's even more. There's even more you must understand. In the Gospel of John, turn to the Gospel of John chapter 1. Take just a moment. I know that many of you, if you are not familiar, you need to read the opening of the first chapter of the Gospel of John. But just let me remind you of that, that first verse. In the beginning, in other words, already in the beginning, the Word was, was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, if you've got it open, look down at verse 14. It says, the Word, that same Word that was in the beginning, that was with God, that was God, that Word became flesh, became human, and dwelt among us tabernacled, tabernacled. That's the illusion when God, in the tent of meeting, resided in the middle of Israel. And then it says, this word that became flesh, we beheld his glory. Hang with me. This is very important. We beheld, we beheld his glory. Now, I have puzzled over that for years. What is his glory? How do we behold it? How do we see it? You know, it is this radiant, blinding light. But he, John says, we. He's talking about Jesus. We beheld his glory. Well, there's not a picture of Jesus. Nobody knows, not even Salmon knows what Jesus looked like his famous painting of Jesus. Was, it, it isn't his beauty, his length of hair or shortness of hair, his sandals, his seamless robe or any of that. What was his glory? 
he tells us in verse 14, it's the glory of the Lord, the same glory that passed by Moses. We be, listen, listen carefully. We beheld his glory, glory as the one and only son of the father, full of grace and truth. I know you can't hear it, but full of grace and truth, that represents the crescendo of what he said to Moses. It's, it's the Greek equivalent to the Hebrew. Steadfast love and faithfulness. Full of steadfast love and faithfulness. Full of grace and truth. Truth, constancy, faithfulness. And then verse 18, look at verse 18, the very last word. He, that is the word, become flesh, Jesus Christ, the glory of God, full of grace and truth. He has made God known. He has revealed God. So when we're singing worship songs and I hear those wonderful words I want to see your glory. In my heart, I always think, Jesus, just look at Jesus and you'll see the glory of God. I hope you can appreciate that Jesus is the epitome of God's revelation to the world. And it's not just about atomic power. It's about his heart, his true intentions and purposes. And that is epitomized. It is the apex, the zenith of his revelation in Jesus Christ. And that's, well, we're sitting here because of it. And we're called his children because of it. And we're united as one body because of it. And that's why Paul says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And what is his glory? Mercy, slow to anger, loving, full of steadfast love and faithfulness. These are the things that reflect the greatness, the majesty of who God really is. And it is shown us in Jesus Christ. By the way, Paul says in chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, he says, he says, if the, if the powers and rulers of this age had known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Isn't that interesting? They wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. In fact, in the verse between 6 and 8, Paul says, this wisdom that is ours, this, and why is Paul talking about that? Chapter 2, he said, I came to you in such weakness. They disrespected Paul at many points because he didn't swag. He came to them humbly. The power of God is demonstrated in weakness because it is in weakness that we really touch other people's hearts. Not in our power, but in his. That's why both Paul and the Gospel of John emphasize that God's glory was revealed in the cross when in his majesty and glory he hung vulnerably out of love for a redemptive purpose so great, and that we should make our petty interests eclipse his redemptive purposes, which led him to the cross, Paul says, do all unto the glory of God. Matt Redman, I know you're familiar, most of you are, writer of a lot of wonderful worship music, he was singing with his church's praise band when his pastor confronted the band. They were proud of their musical performance, he said. The pastor said, but they were neglecting true worship. And the band was insulted. 
and left the church. All except Matt Redman. And shortly after, he wrote his song, The Heart of Worship, which includes these words, I'm coming back to the heart of worship. Will you stand with me? We're going to close with that. When the music fades, all is stripped away, and I simply come, longing just to bring something that's of worth that will bless your heart. I'll bring you more than a song, for a song in itself is not what you have required I search much deeper within through the way things appear you're looking into my heart I'm coming back to the heart of worship and it's all about you it's all about you I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing I've made it. When it's all about you, it's all about you, Jesus. I'll bring you more than a song, for a song in itself is not what you have required. You search much deeper within Through the way things appear You're looking into my heart I'm coming back to the heart of worship And it's all about you It's all about you, Jesus I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing I made Lord, do that work in our hearts, that each moment we might be freed from concern for ourselves, freed to focus on your glory and serving others in the way that you have served us. In Christ's name, amen. If you want to come for prayer, we'll have people up front.
<laughs> Have a good week. <laughs>